So in some ways, Pendragon has always been a role-playing game that has achieved success, but in the shadow of other uh, games. It's certainly not as prevalent as D&D or Call of Cthulhu. Um, and possibly not as prevalent as some of Greg's other work, including Glorantha, which has sure. a very active and rabid fan base. <laughs> but it is a deeply influential game in that, to me, and having talked with Greg, and you've talked to him more than I have before he passed, so I'm sure you can shed some light on this, I feel like Pendragon was the distillation of all of his ideas and theories about game design into one thesis, quite thoroughly if Greg felt something about a mechanic or a game, it's in Pendragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I attribute that to its passionate fan base is that the game does what it's supposed to do. And one of the biggest innovations to me is the personality traits mechanic, mm. which I absolutely adore. I think it's an excellent teaching guide for new role players. So why don't you walk us through what you think about that? and explain the personality trait mechanic as you view it and how it should be used. Yeah. I, well, I mean, yeah, first of all, I, I completely agree with your thesis statement. <laughs> you know, Greg called it his uh, masterpiece, you know, and I obviously meant it, you know. Part of the brilliance of Pendragon, I think, but also maybe one of the reasons why it's it's one of those games like, until you play it, you don't understand how good it is, right? So part of the, you know, part of the brilliance of it, but also maybe one of the things that makes it a little harder to get people to check, give it a first look is the fact that the traits mechanic is so subtle in its application. You know, you hear mm-hmm. about, you hear about this game. Oh, you all play knights. How boring, you know, like, like everyone plays the same character. You mean, I can't play a, a thief or a ninja or something, right. you know, like what the heck? Where's my wizard? Yeah. Where's my wizard? Exactly. And then, and then you get into playing the game and suddenly the other thing about Pendragon, of course, is that it creates this game experience. That's quite different from what you're used to with, mm-hmm. with D&D or, or most other, many other role-playing games, which is that you have to sort of relinquish a certain level of narrative control and be okay with that. You know, like your character becomes a character apart from you in a lot of ways. You know, you can't kind of force, you can't force an experience onto this character. Character is going to tell you how they want to be, you know? Yes. <laughs> uh, and that's through the traits primarily and also the yes. passions as well. So you know? for listeners who aren't familiar with Pendragon, yes, the system has a set of paired personality traits. For example, just and cruel would be opposite each other and they equal a certain number. And if your traits are high enough, they become these overriding drives on your character that you have to test against to act in discord with. So if you have a high, just you have to work to act unjustly towards people. And it is a very difficult role, Uh, you know, less than 20% success chance most of the time. Right, right. And they can get to the point where they are all-consuming personality traits, where you are always this way. You have no other options. And that can be a very engaging experience in that you. one of the things I love about it is you can look at it on the character sheet, and you know how your character would react to a situation. It is sort of personality guide rails or guidelines for your character. That for new players or players who are uncomfortable with some of the more 
theatrical or immersive RPG experiences at times. Mm. It can Mm. be very rewarding to have, oh, this is high. I am this way. So this is what I would do. Even if it isn't something you're rolling against, they are just a nice benchmark to look at and make a decision quickly for as a player. Mm-hmm. And so as we we know a new edition of Pendragon's coming out, um, that's been talked about. Some of the, the quick start has been previewed. It was at Gen Con this last year. And I believe the starter box is supposed to arrive later this year. Very if soon. If I recall correctly. Yeah, very soon. Uh, quarter three, right? A couple months? Uh, quarter two, actually. Oh, so any any month now coming up? Yeah. Okay. They had a they had a, a printer's proof preview at Chaosium Con, so that Excellent. tells you where it's at. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How have you sort of translated? Uh, I I understand you inherited Greg's sort of sixth edition manuscript, mm-hmm. sort of his vision, and he had communicated what he intended to do with the what he considered his definitive edition of the game. Yes, I believe you said that. How have you taken that? and had to adjust this without his guidance into this final edition while making decisions. I'm curious to know what that process is. Yeah, that's a great question. So Greg was, you know, the, how to put this (laughs) when Greg passed away, one of the only sort of positive outcomes of of that tragedy, right, was that he had gotten to a point where the draft was complete. You know, he'd been working on this thing for years. Okay. Had he passed a year earlier, it would not have been anywhere near as complete as it was when he did. So, you know, at least we could say, good, you know, we've got this complete draft manuscript, you know, I think like the only thing that wasn't fully done was like the bestiary in terms of like stat blocks. Cause everybody says stat blocks for the end. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so really it's just been a matter more of taking that rough draft and polishing it up, making it as, as clear as possible, you know, play testing, you know, a bit more, we we did go in and rewrite a couple bits, but very very sparingly. Uh, the the only thing that got completely rewritten was the battle system, sure. um, mostly just because that was that's been one of Pendragon's Achilles heels perennially, and um, I think that was partly a reflection would, of the sort of inner tension that, in yes. Greg, where he was like a narrative gamer but also a war gamer, and so it was very difficult for him to reconcile those two things. You know, that's that's fair. Mass battle systems are a challenging. Uh, a challenging subsystem to tackle. Yeah. So, and I, you know, we got it to a point I'm pretty happy with. So, uh, you know, and, and, and brought it more over into the narrative side of things, you know, okay. it's like less about determining like what the generals are doing or the, the Kings or whoever, and, and more about the player nights sure. on the field and what the experience is. So anyway, you know, mostly though it was, it, it's just been polishing, revising, making the language as clear as possible. That was, I think, really Greg's core goal anyway, was to, you know, like you said, it's, it's his definitive edition. He wants this game to be, he wants this edition to be a version of the game that anyone can pick up, get into. There's not going to be like a, a lot of rules questions, setting questions. Things are like right. very, you know, unambiguous. We made it as unambiguous as possible. And that was sort of the guiding 
you know, philosophy in terms of developing his rough draft into like a finished product, basically. Most of the words on the page are still his, you know, either literally or at least in spirit, you know, I mean, after things go through editing, they're never right. you know, verbatim, but it, it's been an interesting experience actually, because it, it is kind of like every day I'm working, I, I have Greg's voice in my head because I'm working with his words, you right. know, and, and we're still, we're still at a point here where he left so much material that I'm like, you know, the, looking at this production pipeline ahead of me and it's like still like 80% his stuff, <laughs> you okay. know, it's like <laughs> very, well, you know, we, we contracted a few other jobs here and there, but like, it's still mostly right. stuff. The starter set is mostly him. All the scenarios in the starter set were things he, he had written. I wrote the solo quest. That's the only thing that's not Greg in the starter okay. set, you know? Wonderful. So, one of the great things about Pendragon is, and I have opinions on this, and I, I think you know them because we've talked about it, but mm-hmm. both one of its greatest achievements as well as one of its greatest weaknesses is the great Pendragon campaign. So I, first of all, I adore the great Pendragon campaign. Let me just say that up front. I have mm-hmm. ran it over 25 times now to completion. Mm-hmm. It has to be a world record. I hope not. I hope somebody else is as crazy as me out there and I have not achieved a world record. I I am currently running it as a Star Wars RPG for a home group. Wonderful. I've adapted the Pendragon game to Star Wars. And so we're a bunch of Jedi doing our not Grail quest, not Star Wars land. Love that. And, but the other drawback of the Pendragon campaign is it is presented and assumed to be the default way to play Pendragon. And uh, the modern gaming space is less inclined to undertake a 90 session minimum campaign. That is two years of play, roughly, if you get everything done, one year done in a day. Uh, Every session of Pendragon is roughly a year in your character's life, listeners. So when I say 90 sessions, that is 90 years of game time, which Mm -hmm. might or might not happen in 90 sessions. Yeah, more like 120, maybe. (laughs) If you're lucky, yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And if your players are laser focused. Yes. (laughs) So that, how do you, how are you approaching that perspective? Because for me, obviously I love Pendragon. I I don't Mm -hmm. think I would have ran it so much if I didn't, but it is a hurdle to convince people to one, play the great Pendragon campaign, but Mm -hmm. two, realize that that's not the only way you can use Pendragon. And so as you go into this new edition, what is sort of your and Chaosium's approach to solving, addressing, uh, overcoming that hurdle? Yeah, so that is definitely, so kind of to reference back to your previous question, like I Mm -hmm. feel like where I'm coming in isn't so much in terms of the words on the page, but it is sort of like envisioning Mm -hmm. what I want to do with with the line. And um, so for me, that's like one of those, one of those places where I feel like I'm, I'm wielding a certain amount of influence because yeah, like Greg with fifth edition decided, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna make this game like even more focused than it was before in terms of like, not only is everybody playing Knights, but you're all playing Knights from the County of Salisbury and you're all starting out in the year 45 and you're, you know, basically like if you create characters with this core book, and you buy the Great Pendragon campaign, you're just going to go right into that, right? Like, it was almost right. like the core book was how to play the Great Pendragon campaign. They, they are functionally a paired set. They are. And so my little private joke is that, like, you know, we, we you know, 
for sixth edition, we've rebranded the game as just Pendragon because that's what everybody calls it anyway. But up until this point, the game has formally been called King Arthur Pendragon. My little joke is fifth edition should have been called King Uther Pendragon because most campaigns last about 20 sessions regardless of the game you're playing, which means that most people would start playing the Pendragon campaign during the reign of King Uther and not even make it to Arthur drawing the sword from the stone, you know? And to me, that's just like, you know, no. Uh, (laughs) Don't want that for the game, right? And when I got into Pendragon, I got into it in fourth edition when it was a lot more, to me, it was a lot more like Call of Cthulhu is, where there's this rich library of scenarios. You make Mm -hmm. a character... As the GM, I can pick whatever scenarios I want to run. I run these scenarios for however long we want to play until we're done playing. And right. the, 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 the Boy King campaign, which became the GPC, is a great framework on which to hang your campaign. It's, it, you know, it's like it's a chronology. Right. Oh, what's go- what else is going on this year? Let's check it out. You know, and that kind of thing. And sometimes that's going to preempt what I had planned for that year. And other times I'll just mention it as people are engaging in court sure. or whatever. So I very much want the game to get back to that because I want the Great Pendering campaign to be there all the time. I want it to be there as an option for people to run it if they want. Absolutely. But I also just want it to be a resource for people to use because, hey, realistically, like you said, nowadays campaigns last 10, 15, 20 sessions, and then people will go on to the next thing. Or they, you know, even if they want to play more Pendragon, maybe they want to start with new characters or they want to right. like do a time jump or whatever, you know, like, you know. So for instance, with the new revised Great Pendragon campaign, instead of it being one big fat book that could stop a bullet, we're going to break it up into slimmer volumes so that it's like, I want to play sure. the Boy King Conquest arc, you know, start mm-hmm. with Arthur drawing sword from stone and with him being crowned Emperor of the Romans sure. has about 20 game years. Perfect. You know, and right. then if we want to keep going on into romance or we want to jump ahead and play the Grail quest, we can do that. You know, we'll just sure. buy the relevant volume. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm always harping on this, but like, I guess my my watchword is modularity. You know, I want Pendragon yes. to be a modular game, you know. I, I think that suits it well. And I, I definitely think that that's, to, to compliment that, I, that is the attitude I would take and approach the problem with, I think. And, you know, that gives me a lot of uh, a lot of joy to hear that this game I love is getting that sort of vision and respect. Yeah. So moving on from Pendragon a little bit, you also work on other things mm-hmm. um, and you also have a lot of other hobbies. One of the things on a personal level I notice you really love is silent era horror movies. <laughs> so what I mean. You, you weren't around in the silent era. As far as you know. What? I, I really hope not. Um, you look very well for your age if you were. Thank you. Thank you. What what inspires that love? Like what? That is, to me, a very interesting sort of passion area. Mm. Because mm. it's not one you see a lot in people your age. And it's not one that's easily accessed in a lot of ways. A lot of that information is lost or missing or damage beyond, you know, uh, usability in some ways. So mm-hmm. what, why? Why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it's not strictly silent era. It, 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 you know, it's sort of twenties and thirties, I would say, Pre-code, you know, because, I suppose. Yeah. Cause I would, you know, I love a good classic universal horror picture as well, you know? And I guess it, it you know, I don't know. It's, 
probably a variety of factors. You know, when I was a kid, my school library had these little these little books that had these like orange spines and like each one was about like a different like universal horror monster. So like, you know, were they black and white with the pictures and the plot synopsises? Uh huh. (laughs) Yes. My school had those two. I remember them now. Yeah. I wish I could, you know, I I could probably hunt them up online and and find out what they were called. But yeah, I think like a lot of school libraries had those and yeah, many a young mind was warped by them. So, you know, that's kind of how I got into like older, Mm -hmm. like kind of horror cinema, you know, famous monsters of film land, that kind of thing, you know, and then, yeah, I think also, I mean, obviously, like once I got into Call of Cthulhu and it's kind of like, hey, this game's set in the 20s. OK, let me like do some research on the 20s because I'm just like a history guy, my, you know, right. regardless. Right. You know, it's where my degree is. And, you know, I just I love doing research. I also love like liminal spaces. Like so, sure. you know, I, like that transition from like theater into cinema and like what directors were doing as they were experimenting with the forms like German expressionism, of course. Yes. Just, just watched a really great German horror movie that's on Amazon prime. Do not, no wait, Don't watch the version on Amazon prime. Watch the version on YouTube. It's the golem from, oh, okay. I want to say 27, 1927, Amazing visual effects like there, there's this point where the rabbi like calls up some kind of spirit to teach him how to do the golem ritual and the way they film that is just mind-blowing i mean it's like they're 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 using like mirrors and like literal smoke and mirrors and then you know like kind of visual tricks and you know it's just i was just sitting there like with my mouth hanging open like this is great you know and i think that's maybe just a part of what i love about it is like you know, people were very inventive. They weren't afraid to experiment with the form. And you just see things, you see like visuals and stuff that you just don't see anymore. You know, right? it's, it's fun. It's just fun. Okay. So first my friend, David Annandale, who was on previously, uh, teaches horror cinema at a college in Canada and writes for a games workshop in Marvel. And you should talk to him because he teaches a lot about black and white, pre-code horror movies. Cool. And I think he just watched this Golem movie because he was posting about it. Oh, nice. So, because <laughs> you're describing this to me and it's sounding familiar. Yeah, yeah. But second, so you're you're talking about pushing the envelope and innovation. And, uh, and this question is going to be a little challenging, I think. But from your perspective, and I obviously knowing you work for Chaosium and with the Pendragon line, a lot of what Chaosium is doing is based on a legacy and a history. Mm. And I'm, I'm interested to know in how you are uh, adding innovation and expression to that legacy and that history without becoming, you know, either slavishly devoted and unchanging and also staying relevant because it, to me, that seems like a very difficult line to walk. Yeah. And I, I'm curious what your thoughts and approach are to that. Yeah. Yeah. So couple ways first is visually and that is you know absolutely right you know like i mean i've always been a big proponent of art in rpgs there are people out there who are like oh you don't need art you know blah 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 you know i'm like people are wrong those people are wrong because you you have to have art to feed your imagination because we're all picturing stuff in our mind you know so and pendragon 
you know, has had a lot of really good parts, really good things about its its legacy. Art is not necessarily one of them. You know, it, it's sure. <laughs> it, it it has had some good art, but like you know, Lisa Free in, in particular. But you know, not a not a huge legacy of of, of great art. Uh, you know, for the game, and this is a game that really you know, visuals can help distinguish it from being kind Absolutely. of a more generic fantasy vibe, right? You know, you want to really communicate like this is medieval fantasy. This is not, okay. you know, postmodern fantasy, right? Which Rom- Romantic fantasy as opposed to standard sort of high fantasy or dark fantasy. Exactly, right. High fantasy, exactly. Yeah, so which is all good, you know, not, not right. taking a Obviously. shot at it. But like, at, at the same time, it's kind of like, yeah, why wouldn't you just play D&D if it was just... Art is an immediate game, communication right? about why it's different. You can look at it and know, oh, this is different than this D&D book or exactly. this RuneQuest book even. Exactly. And um, so that's actually been a, a nice surprise for my, you know, my stint here so far is that uh, I discovered I love art directing. Like I love uh, commissioning art, <laughs> you know, because you kind of work with an artist you go i'm kind of picturing something like this and they come back to you two months later like like this you go oh my god that's even better you know (laughs) like or whatever so that's that that's been a big goal for myself personally and also for the the company as a whole and then yeah in terms of for you know other ways so and this is this is an example what i was talking about earlier in terms of like using what greg wrote right so like the starter set, we've got three women knights out of the eight knights that we include, okay. you know, in the set. We have women knights depicted in the art, which, again, is something that's not been consistent or even, you know, really happening at all for most of the, the game line history. However, if you go back all the way to first edition from the 80s, it says, you know, hey, lady knights are a thing. Women knights are a thing. If you want to play a woman knight, knock yourself out. Go for it. And every edition since then has like paid more and more attention to that. That being said, you know, to speak to the power of art, as we started to like kind of put out some previews and quick starts and stuff, you know, starting a couple of years ago, people lost their minds on the forums. You know, there's like, oh, I see what you're doing. You're pushing this woke agenda or whatever. And it's kind of like, no, actually, that's always been in there. And in fact, in Greg's initial draft of sixth edition, he actually went into it in even more kind of detail like he had this whole like side rant about how stupid chainmail bikinis are and like you know how like women's armor should be realistic and all and we kept some of that we trimmed it down quite a bit because like it was a little bit of a rant but like you know <laughs> somebody had a soapbox for a moment yeah exactly right so it's like that's what greg wanted he wanted to push the game forward he wanted to sure. like foreground things like yes you can play women knights yes you can play knights from africa from the near east from you know, any number of other locales you care to name. That's the whole point of Arthur's court is that it's cosmopolitan. It draws people from all over, you know? So like, you know, if anything, we're just kind of foregrounding those elements a little bit more because, you know, one thing I ran into as a, as a big Pendragon booster back in the day, like, I think I've probably run Pendragon for more women than men, you know, Mm -hmm. like if I, if I were to think about it and women love playing Pendragon, they'll play male knights, they'll play female knights, whatever. But I was encountering, like, it could be a little bit of a hard sell initially because they would just be like, well, what, am I just supposed to play, like, a damsel in distress or something? Like, is that my only option? You know, and it's kind of like, no. And, in fact, even if you do play a player lady, we're going to, you know, kind of present ways in which it's like, 
yeah, it's not just about, you know, conking a dragon over the head. You can also like <laughs> get other get knights to go off and do that for you or, you know, kind of wield your power at court or whatever, right. you know. So it's like we want to like make that really obvious. Like there's all these different approaches to playing the game in terms of who your character is, uh, how you want to play them, how, you know, how much you want to like adhere to like modern value systems versus like playing like a more medieval romance. Cause that, that there's a lot of fun there too. I mean, most Absolutely. people opt for playing pagan knights these days. I'm always like, I want to play a Christian knight because like, I want to get into this guy's head. Like I'm not a medieval Christian, but like, I want to kind of see what that experience is like. I, know? I have only ever been able to be a player in one Pendragon campaign Mm -hmm. and being me, I immediately played uh, a Norse pagan knight because I'm me. (laughs) Yes. And it was the first thing I did. And my backup character was uh, going to be a Saracen knight. (laughs) So unfortunately I have not experienced the, the Roman Christian, British Christian divide. But I yes. would definitely, yeah, I definitely have seen more pagan knights than Christian knights. I had not considered that till just now. Yeah, and that's fine. You know, that's why okay. Greg included it as an option, right? Because it's like, hey, I get it. Like, not everyone wants, you know, people have different associations. Like, Christianity is a world religion that is very much active today that we're not talking about the Forgotten Realms here, you know? And so people are right. going to have real world associations with these religions, you know, and and like, for yourself, it's like maybe you want to like embody a character who has a belief system that's closer to you, right? Or maybe you just don't want to play sure. Christian Knight. That's fine, whatever. Something you know, I definitely encountered are... writing Heirs to Heresy, uh, my Templar. Yeah. Was oh yeah. The yeah. advent of Christianity in the Crusades, which is, uh, I, I would be hard pressed to define it as a positive moment in the Christian history in the world. For real, yeah. So interesting. I, that's a good answer. I, I have always kind of, as I've seen chaos, you create new things and their latest round of books have been just gorgeously visually stunning. Mm. Um, I've always been interested in what those internal discussions on how do we avoid just becoming a company that's putting out re-arted versions of ourselves, Yeah, you know, for years to come and remain a company that was, that was known for innovating and moving the bar and keep doing that because that's a hard tightrope to walk, especially since at this point, almost everybody at Chaosium is somebody who was not there in the original days, I think. Correct. Yeah. So there, there is uh, no matter how talented somebody is, there is a sort of a loss of vision or lineage when you lose that first wave of minds behind something. So that's, that's interesting. Uh, I would, I would really be thrilled to see Chaosium do uh, some blog posts on that article. Side note, I think that'd be of a great interest to people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, just behind the scenes a little bit, you know, like there's, well, Rivers of London would be an example of like, where the company is also trying to, so it's like, you know, like you said, it's like walking this line where it's like, well, we have this legacy, we're gonna, we're gonna honor that legacy, we're gonna maintain that legacy. But it's like, we don't want to just rest on that. So what else can we do? And like Rivers of London would be like one of the initial examples of a lot of stuff that's kind of been brewing behind the scenes in terms of like original content, I guess you could say. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't expect Chaosium to quit making Call of Cthulhu. I imagine everybody would be out of a job (laughs) if that happened. Right. But (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I'm always interested to see the mix between, you know, oh, we're releasing uh, an updated version of Masks of Naralethotep, but we're also going to release this new adventure compendium. And sort yeah. of, you know, what what those conversations are like. And with something like Pendragon, where there is both 
I, I would I want to say a dearth, but there is a limited pool compared to something like Call of Cthulhu for mm-hmm. reissues in a sense. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, meant, you you could reissue everything, but you would run out of stuff much faster than you would for Call of Cthulhu or Glorantha. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And so that that sort of that that need to innovate or move forward is going to come much quicker for the line you're managing. And I think that's an interesting uh, dilemma to sort of be presented with in a company where you might be the only one who's going to see that dilemma coming first. Right. <laughs> the train is much closer to you down the tracks. Yeah, because I mean, like with RuneQuest, if anything, it's the other way around. Where everyone's like, "Can we get out of Dragon Pass, please? Like, can we can we boost?" And it's like, "No, we've still got a lot of Dragon Pass we need to talk about," you know. And like, <laughs> but yeah, like, well, for to that point, we are going to do a, a revised uh, Grey Knight that's much expanded, like with with extra stuff that's going to kind of dovetail with the starter set as well. Excellent. Yeah, but that's really the only like revised edition that is in the is in the hopper and you know what are we let's see well for example this isn't going to see print anytime soon but i'll talk about it anyway graham davis who is like one of uh, you know another one of my heroes right emails me and he's like can i write for pendragon i'm like of course you can you know what do you want to do you know and uh are you going to say no to right exactly (laughs) so (laughs) so so he's like well what about bestiary i'm like cool. I like it. I mean, like we have obviously yeah. a bestiary chapter in the GM's handbook, but like, you know, like let's do this. Let's like, you know, and speaking of the art, like let's do this up. Like let's do this almost like sure. a coffee table book. Right. You know, where it's like every, every creature in the thing is a two page spread where you have the art on one side and then you have like the folklore and the stats on nice. the other side. You know? Well, that's yeah. going to be a wonderful resource. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to getting that out, you know? So yeah, stuff like that, where it's like, Let's do things that have never been done for the line before, you know? Yeah. So speaking of doing things never been done for the line before, you mentioned earlier you wrote a alternative version of Pendragon that was samurai based. Mm-hmm. And it would be seen print eventually. Yes. Um, and there was Paladin, which was Charlemagne based. Mm-hmm. All right. Can we expect further movement of the Pendragon rule set into other sort of genres? Yeah, I would love to see that, honestly. You know, Pendragon itself is represents, you know, an offshoot of the basic role-playing system that is this kind of, you know, streamlined version of the mechanics. It's D20 based. Right. Obviously, you know, a lot of folks like to roll their D20s. And uh, you know, streamlined skill list, like you said earlier, just kind of focused more on like what is the game trying to accomplish right. rather than being all things to all people. And so I think in that regard. Yeah, I mean, you can you can do a lot with it. So, of course, there's obviously the, hey, let's do other, like, myth cycles of the world kind of right. thing. So, like, the, the samurai spinoff is, is, is based around, you know, like, late Heian-era Japan with the tale of the Heiki and, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the sort of fall of the emperor's court and the rise of the samurai as a class and a ruling class, sure. you know. And then we have a heroic Greek game that uh is based around the trojan war cycle uh and the you know the generations leading up to that perseus and those those chaps you know we we've we've talked about other myth cycles that we can adapt Mm -hmm. you know but our friend and colleague john wick he's pitched me on a just kind of like a more general like fantasy spinoff of pendragon that's like a 
almost like a kind of Game of Thrones vibe, you know, where it's like all about political maneuvering machinations. You know, there's a lot you can do with it. And yeah, I mean, for any listeners out there who want to pitch me a game. Oh, I've got a list. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not qualified to write them, but if you would like to find an author who would do a Romance of the Three Kingdoms era Pendragon for me, that would be great. Yeah, not not a month goes by, it feels like. Somebody goes, hey, have you considered doing Romance of the Three Kingdoms with Pendragon? I'm like, yes, I have, and I'm waiting for the right person to come yes. along. To Listeners it, you know? uh, from my meager audience, if one of you is the right person, reach out yeah. to David, please, so I because can get I, that game on my shelf. Yeah, and I, I just want to say, like, with the Samurai game, for example, like, I worked very closely right. with, um, you know, a Japanese game designer, Nobuaki Takarube, um, who, you know, was a, a, a wonderful like cultural consultant, sensitivity reader, advisor. You know, yeah. I couldn't have written that game without him. And I wouldn't have wanted to write that game without him. Right. Same deal. It's like if somebody out there is like, hey, I know Romance of the Kingdoms inside and out. I'm like the right person to advise on this game, but I can't write a role-playing game. Get in touch with me anyway. We'll work something out, you know? Cool. Well, that's uh that's exciting. I hope to see some of those come to fruition. I think that there's, it's a wonderful rule set that has a lot of strength to it. Yeah. So let's, uh, we've spent quite too long talking about Pendragon. I say that not really meaning it. Yeah. Right. Because you can never spend too long speaking about Pendragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about some of the other work you've done outside of Pendragon. So what else have you, uh, what do you have coming? What have you done that you might want to give us some insight into? Well, so I, I have a lot of things in the hopper. I, I guess I guess I, th- I think I'm the only person at Chaosium who's written for all of their lines. Okay. So <laughs> not necessarily had things published for all of their lines, but like sure. yeah, I've written for Call of Cthulhu, Pendragon, RuneQuest, and Seventh C. So I think the next thing that's due out is actually for Seventh C, and that is the last book in from their Kickstarter way back when, mm-hmm. uh, which now has the title Land of a Thousand Nations. Okay. And it's it's kind of the source book on, you know, that's that game's equivalent yep. of the North American continent. And, you know, speaking of facilitating, speaking of working, working with other folks like John and I both, you know, didn't want to be the ones to write that book. We wanted right. uh, a native author. So when we were sort of looking around, Coyote and Crow had just had their Kickstarter. So I just dropped a line to the creators and said, hey, is anyone from your team want to work for 7C? And so we found Derek Pounds, and he is the lead developer, lead creative on that Wonderful. project. I came in and I wrote one chapter for that, which was a lot of fun because it's based on the Wampanoag and kind of, you know, Salem era area, you know, sort of equivalents. They're the one colony, the one Thayan colony that actually has gotten a foothold on the continent. And mostly they're just there because the local nations are just kind of like, hey, we really like some of the things you can offer us as trade goods. So we'll let you stay, (laughs) basically, you know. But we got to, you know, I got to really get into that kind of like. Well, that's fun. Yeah, Northeastern India. I was able to write for Cities of Faith and Wonder. And I wrote a city that I pitched as it's Casablanca. And then I was told, uh, that's fine, but how are you going to make it piratey? And I was like, (laughs) I don't have to, it's Casablanca. I don't know what you mean. (laughs) I'm going to put magic on it. So everything's in black and white when you go to the Island, because I can do that. 
<laughs> the color drains out as you sail in there. You can only see blues and red. <laughs> but uh, it was a lot of fun to uh, sort of stretch and create. A, you'll if you anybody reads it, you'll and you read my chapter. It is you will see the Casablanca uh, mm. references pretty thoroughly. Uh, yeah. Right down to a club, uh, a nightclub owner who might have a heart of gold or might not, and uh, soldiers in gray. So nice. Love it's a that. fun setting to explore and get to sink your teeth into. I will say that. Yeah, because it's it's like you say. It's like you you can take the real world and say, oh, there's magic, so I can do whatever I want. You get you get to sort of twist it up and be like, it's familiar enough. It's easy to explain, but you can still make it feel very different. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. And you've written for RuneQuest. What did you write for RuneQuest? So I wrote a uh, scenario that I think was originally going to make it into the starter set. And then I think they had to, you know, cut it for length or something like that. So I don't know. It'll it'll show up somewhere. But that one was a lot of fun because I got to tap into my previous life working in public libraries because it okay. centers, around, <laughs> centers around a library um, and a mystery there but I got to have an undead librarian show up. So, you know, well, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, that's uh David, what can we be looking forward to from you in the future outside of Chaosium? Well, let's see. Yeah. There's some projects, you know, I'm, I'm looking to expand my scope now that, now that, um, uh, you know, the, the core material on Pendragon is kind of uh, wrapping up. So, I've had a long, long-standing, what would you say, <clears throat> long-standing dream of publishing uh, this game that a friend and I worked up called Action International. That's like kind of a an ode to our love of my my other great cinematic love, which is '80s action and martial arts movies. Sure. And um, we're actually rejiggering it right now in the wake of you know speaking of Chaosium in the wake of basic role playing being okay. released under the orc license. Sure. Um, so we're going to put it out as a, as an orc cool licensed product with the BRP as the core uh, mechanic. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's, it, I mean, one of my earliest RPG um, obsessions was all things palladium games. And oh, so of course sure. we played rifts, but we also played ninjas and super spies. So this is kind of our love letter to ninjas and super spies in a way. Exciting. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing that. I uh, I have seen the cover, listeners, and it's fantastic. So be uh, be on the lookout for Action International when uh, whenever it starts to come out. Yes, hopefully this year, but we'll see. Yes. So, David, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, of uh, it's course. Been good Thanks to catch for up with me. you. I only get yeah. to see David at Gen Con occasionally, so it's nice to get a chance to chat with him. Indeed, David. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here. So real quick, bullet point list. If a listener wanted to get a feel for what makes David the gamer and game designer you are, what three books would you send them to read? Oh, Lord. Okay. Hmm. They can be wow, games. That's... They can be not games. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is that is a great. Movies question. are acceptable. Uh, yes. <laughs> what, are your three, what are your three biggest things that have influenced how you approach game design? So I would start, I would actually start them by sending them to read an old choose your own adventure game book series from the eighties called Lone Wolf. That is where I started with gaming. Um, I would literally 
spend my lunch hours in elementary school reading these books out loud to a friend as if I was like GMing the game for him and letting him make the choices and then like, sure. you know, whatnot. But it's also just a great example. World building, a lot of the author Joe Deaver's uh, verbiage still makes its way into my into my own. Uh, I'll, I'll notice from time to time. So, uh, and they're reprinting the series nowadays in these, you know, sort of deluxe hardbacks that are directly marketed to people like me in their 40s who remember these books fondly uh, and have a little bit of disposable income, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I would start them with the Lone Wolf books. And then, gosh, let's see. I think as far as like what influences me as a game writer, I feel like I would also just send them in the direction of, I'm just trying, I'm trying to think of like one of the many, you know, like uh, reference books or just kind of like, a good history book, you know what I mean? You know, it's like, it's, it's almost like I can't really like give a, a specific title. Like I could just say like, read a lot of like really good, weird history books, reference books about like the occult or, you know, mythology, you know? Yeah, gosh. Like just basically dive in, dive in on like, you sure. know, some good historical reference books. And right. then, yeah, as far like, I'm going to throw in a movie as the third one. And that's a tough choice as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I would just say, you know, honestly, I would say, speaking of 80s fantasy, because that's really where a lot of me is grounded. Got to watch Excalibur. Got to check out Excalibur. <laughs> Fair enough. I was half hoping for Lady Hawk. It, it was like, Excalibur, Lady Hawk, or Willow. I'm not sure which Those are one all fair for. choices. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> and then uh, what what question have you always wanted to be asked in an interview that you've never been asked? <laughs> hmm. I know. It's hard. I would say, because honestly, you know, I've, I've had a fair amount of interviews at this point, and, and folks have been pretty good about asking me, a whole variety of questions. So I'm just, I'm thinking like, is there any, is there any itch that has not been scratched yet? And I think, mm, oh, here's one. I'm a game designer. I'm a GM. So because of that, obviously I very rarely get to play. What game and campaign would I most like to be a player in as opposed to running? I think that's a great question. So what's the answer, David? The answer is, you know, weirdly enough, I have never played, never been a player in, nor have I ever run Masks of Nyarlathotep. And I would love to just get into a long-term sure. Call of Cthulhu campaign, pre- preferably Masks, could be Horror in the Iron Express, whatever. But, like, let me play an investigator for, like, more than two or three sessions, please. And let me, let, let's get into it. Let's play a really long-term Call of Cthulhu campaign. Interesting answer. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. David, do you have any questions for me? I'd ask you the same thing. What, what, what campaign oh. would you most like to be a player in? Well, I would, I would like to play the full Pendragon campaign as a player at some point. As I've only player. ever been a player through the end of the Uther era. 
Yeah. So I would like to do the rest of it um, that, as a player. Yeah. That, that would be my second answer as well. Yeah. But I think I just for the sake of having done it, I would like to play either sort of the the Pavis campaign from mm-hmm. Glorantha. Yeah. The big rebel. Yeah. Or I would love to play through uh, Dracula Untold. Oh, yeah. I've never been nice. able to play that either. I've ran Knights Black Agents, but I've never played it. Yeah. So yeah. I think those would be my two choices, mostly for the uh, novelty of getting to experience them. I've read them. I've ran some versions of them, but I never played them. So those would be my yeah. answers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like Dracula and Redacted would be... I was, I. Amazing. I do really yeah. want to do Kingmaker with Pathfinder Second Edition because I'm yeah. a big fan of Second Edition Pathfinder. I think it's a fantastically good game, and yeah. I played the first edition of Kingmaker and loved it. So I would love to do Kingmaker too. But I've already played one version of that, so I'm not sure it counts. <laughs> All right, David. If folks want to find you or support you, what is the best way to do so? Well, let's see. I am just kind of getting into the whole Substack thing, so um, you can follow me there. I'm trying to write, you know, an article every week or two just to put something out there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like Substack because you can subscribe to people and then it gets emailed to you. It's very easy. You don't have to, like, check in on somebody's website or, you know, follow them on mm-hmm. social media or whatever. I'm sort of nominally on social media. You know, I'm uh, <laughs> at Sir Larkins on Twitter. I have a Facebook. Certainly you can follow me there. You'll mostly find that I'm retweeting things about games I'm already working on or friends uh, stuff or whatever, but um, I am there. I do have a presence. And uh, otherwise I have an actual play podcast called the esoteric order of role players. And we play a lot of very esoteric games as our name indicates. Um, And right now we are playing uh, DC heroes slash the Batman RPG as a two player game with Batman and Robin. It's excellent. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on, David. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It's been wonderful, Alan. Thank you. Excellent. Folks, my name is Alan Barr, and this has been Radio Free RPG.